0: look at lesson number 43, perfect prayer pattern. We are going to be looking at what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, but we'll talk about how it really should be called the Disciples Prayer. Lesson number 43. We'll be reading verses 7 to 10. Actually, I think I'll start back at verse 5. Let's read all the way from 5 through verse 10, because that's as far as we'll get In this morning's lesson, hopefully we'll get that far. And then next week we'll finish up looking at um, the last part, verses 11 to 15. So if you're in Matthew chapter 6, let's start at verse 5, where the Lord said, and we talked about this last week, when he said, uh, "...and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men." Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to stop right there because that's as far as we'll get in our study this morning. In his book, Something Happens When Churches Pray... Warren Weersby tells us that God has great blessings that he wants to shed upon his children if we will only pray effectively and fervently and properly so that we can receive those blessings. The number one priority in both our personal and in our congregational lives should be that of effectual, fervent, proper prayer. When I say proper prayer, prayer, which is in alignment with God's word and God's will. Sadly, far too often the situation is that Christians pray like sailors use their pumps. And when do sailors use their pumps? Only when the ship is leaking. However, in order to be obedient and to experience the fullness of God's blessings, we need to pray as the Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed, because in all things he is our example, His life was our example. And do you think he saw results out of his prayers? Absolutely. Every one of his prayers brought great results, both for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. Prayer was as natural a part of the Lord's life as breathing. He loved to pray. He loved to commune with his Father in heaven. In fact, he bathed his entire earthly ministry in prayer. And to this day, he is still praying. You know that, right? Because he is our high priest who makes intercession for all those who come to him, to, who come to God by him. He not only gave us a living example of a life of prayer, but he also taught us how to pray and what to pray for by giving to us a perfect prayer pattern. And that's what normally is called the Lord's Prayer. In the fifth, section of his very famous sermon on the mount he um he gave us this perfect prayer pattern and we will be looking at it in a two-part study today's lesson and next week's lesson very important that we spend at least two weeks looking at this prayer you know the most important or the most famous i should say the most famous sermon that the lord jesus ever spoke was the sermon on the mount Of course, the greatest prophetic sermon was the one I just told you about, the Olivet Discourse. But the most famous of all is the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, probably the Lord's Prayer. That's the the thing most people could recite from memory. So the most famous part of the most famous sermon is the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. And... I know that for some 2,000 years, even though it's been called the Lord's Prayer, and I don't think we're going to make a difference in trying to change the name now because that's what people... The Lord's Prayer really should be the prayer he prayed in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. That's what we should call the Lord's Prayer. But for some reason, for 2,000 years, this prayer that we're looking at in Matthew 6 has been called the Lord's Prayer. Yet the, the truth of the matter is that a much better title would be the disciples' prayer because that is exactly what it is. It is a prayer for those who follow and learn from the Lord Jesus. And it was presented, actually, at the disciples' request. Now, you don't see that in our Matthew account of the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer, but you do if you would go over to Luke 11.1. 1, you will see that it was the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he gave them this perfect prayer pattern. It shouldn't be called the Lord's Prayer because it is not a prayer that the Lord himself in its entirety would pray for himself. Basically because the last part of it contains a petition for the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, uh, as we forgive our debtors. And he would never have prayed for the forgiveness of sins because he never sinned. This prayer was given by the Lord to his disciples and to all future disciples, all future followers, learners of the Lord himself. And he gave it to instruct us on the manner in which we should pray. It is the perfect pattern for prayer. It is the model and it is the challenge for our prayers. And although it is only 66 words long in the English... Sixty-six words, just like how many books are in the Bible. Sixty-six words in the Bible, sixty-six words in the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. Yet, it's a short prayer, but its depth cannot be exhausted by our exposition. It contains also, which is interesting, six petitions. You see, it's man's prayer. What is the number for man? Six. It has six petitions in it. It's man's prayer. It's not the Lord's prayer, or it would have seven petitions. And uh, these petitions are perfect for you and I to use as our skeleton outline for prayer, which we then flesh out, you see, with our own words. The initial focus of the first part of the prayer is upward, as all our prayers should be. Always be God first. When you go to the Lord in prayer, first thing you should do is exalt his name. Praise his name. Pray for his kingdom to come. um, Pray for his will to be done. We always, our prayers should always be upward first. God first. And then the, um, and they have to do with God's glory. The remaining three requests then deal with mankind, with our well-being. God first and then man. That's easy to remember, right? Sometimes we jump into prayer and we just pray for us first. But that shouldn't be the pattern. Um, and this is the ideal order that uh, we also find or the pattern that we find in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments have to do with God's glory, with our du- the duties that we owe to God. And then the last six deal with man's well-being or our duties that, that we owe to our neighbors. Unfortunately, this perfect prayer pattern of Matthew chapter 6 has more often been routinely repeated from the lips of God's people than it has genuinely been prayed by God's people. You notice he did not say, Pray this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He didn't say, Pray this. He said, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. You see that in verse 9. Now, it's not wrong, don't get me wrong, it's not wrong once in a while to pray the prayer just as the Lord Jesus gave it to us, as long as we concentrate on the meaning of the words that we're saying. But the obvious problem with a routine reciting of, of this prayer which probably most of us have known since we were little I learned it in Greek before I ever learned it in English I can tell you the Lord's Prayer in Greek but I would just rattle it off and I didn't even think about the words and that's, that's, the, that's the temptation is to just you know have surface familiarity with something I always have trouble saying that word familiarity say it it's a hard word to say <laughs> familiarity breeds contempt but uh, it, it, it's, it's something we can become immune to and so familiar with that you know we, we lose the, the deep meaning so, so we just say the prayer without really praying the prayer some churches say this prayer every single Sunday don't they and, and, and there's nothing wrong with the prayer it's a beautiful prayer the problem is people just saying it without... We have the same problem with our hymns sometimes. I, I have to catch myself all the time when I'm singing a song out of the hymn book. I don't want to just sing the words and because I know them and I'm so familiar with them. I want to think about them. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to... Everything should come from the heart when we're talking to him or when we, we're singing for him. <clears throat> so the temptation is that we just say the prayer without really praying the prayer. Now, I hope that during this two-part study of this wonderful prayer pattern that we will see old and familiar truths in a new and a revitalizing, a refreshing way. Most of all, I hope that as we look at the disciples' prayer, each of us will learn how to pray with greater effectiveness, with greater uh, fervency, with greater power, and that we will learn to enjoy our time of prayer with the Lord in a greater way and I don't think there's probably anyone in this room who couldn't use some improvement in our prayer lives I know I certainly can when we began Matthew chapter 6 last week I know it's probably hard to see that outline but you have it in your books we also began a new section of the sermon which is called rejection of pharisaic religionism which had to do with Christ's teaching on the subject of righteousness and religious activities. And we learned that he broke this lesson on, on this subject into three areas of religious life. First, he discussed the matter of charitable giving or almsgiving. And he contrasted the wrong motive and the wrong method of giving alms, with, which was typified by the scribes and the Pharisees, with the right motive and the right manner of giving alms. Uh, It shouldn't be with a sounding trumpet to announce so that we get the praise of men, right? It should be with silent hands. And then he also talked about the area of prayer, and again he contrasted the wrong motive and the wrong method of manner of praying, which would be standing openly in order to glorify self, with the right motive and the right manner of praying, which should be really in our secret closet to glorify God. And then 30 made the same contrast Regarding the uh, religious exercise of fasting, we shouldn't go out with a sad countenance so that everybody knows that we're fasting today or this week or whatever the situation might, might be to gain the praise of men, but we should do it with a shining face. All right, then when we were discussing the Lord's teaching on the matter of prayer, we had said that we would skip over verses 7 to 15 so that we could spend more time on them, and that is exactly what we're going to be doing this morning and again next Tuesday, Lord willing. So before Jesus presented his perfect his, his uh, perfect prayer pattern, which is the positive way to pray, the right way to pray, first of all, he spoke... Um, some words of warning, and he talked about some of the perils, some of the dangers of improper prayer. So before he gave us the positive, he gave us the negative. And we mentioned a few of those perils in last week's lesson, and we're going to touch on them just a little bit again this morning under the first part of your outline, which is the errors of ineffective prayer. And in that section, we'll be looking at verses 5 to 8. And uh, in your book, you'll see I called them, subtitled these errors, Vanity Praying, Valueless Praying, and Verbose Praying. You know, no other nation or people has ever been so favored by God to receive direct communication from him as has the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And therefore, no other people should have known more about how to pray to God than them, than the Jews. Yet, even though they had a very high regard for prayer, rabbinical teaching and tradition, again, as we've seen over and over again, had over the centuries slowly corrupted and misused this single greatest activity of the human soul. What is the greatest, single greatest activity of the human soul? Talking to God when we pray. And so, again, they had misused it and corrupted it. Until by the time of Jesus, most Jewish people were both ignorant and confused about how to pray effectively and correctly to God. Now, as a nation, she had a regard for prayer, but she had lost the reality of prayer. And this frustration we see even evidenced to us by the Lord's disciples. For they are the ones who requested to him that he teach them how to pray. They had seen firsthand how he would spend entire nights in communion with God or how he would get up way before the sun and go away privately in order to commune with God. And they wanted to know what it was that he said to him. And they wanted to know how he prayed. And they wanted to know what made him so eager to return to his Heavenly Father in prayer so often. The prayers of Israel had, overall, they had degenerated into hypocritical and heathenish-type prayers that certainly did not glorify God, and we spent a good deal of our time last week talking about that. We have discussed the Lord's condemnation of those who love to pray publicly on busy street corners or in crowded synagogues, in order to be seen of men and to attain their acclaim. In other words, they prayed hypocritically for their, uh, because their prayers were for self. They were vain glory type prayers. They did not really care about glorifying God or worshiping him through their petitions. They only cared about self-glory. And we see this really in, um, exemplified to us in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican when that man was really... Obnoxious in his self-glorification prayer, prayer. <clears throat> so, by and large, the prayers of Israel had become extremely um, hypocritical. They had become extremely ritualized. They were usually just read from a prayer book, as they still do today, or recited from memory. And the danger of this, again, is that there is very little heart felt, attention, or consciousness of what is actually being prayed when you just read something out of a prayer book. The temptation, now if you're really, really thinking about those words and praying those words yourself to God, that's good, that's fine, but the temptation is to do otherwise. Prayers became a semi-conscious religious exercise to be performed routinely at certain prescribed times pre-established times of the day. I think they had a prayer call at 9 o'clock, another one at 12 o'clock, and yet a third one at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Or uh, it, we find the same thing. That we, we pray at certain pre-established times in our church service, in, in a certain sequence. And that you know, the, the danger of that is that it just becomes routine. The natural flow of prayer, therefore, was stifled. It was not spontaneous, and most of the times it was not sincere when it was performed as merely a mechanical religious exercise. This is what we refer to in your outline in your book as valueless prayer. It's not coming from the heart. It's just memorized, it's just recited, it's just read, and you're not speaking it from the heart. That's valueless praying. Furthermore, the Jewish religious leaders had picked up on another erroneous idea, about prayer from the pagans around them, and that was the, that the length of their prayer determined its spirituality and favor with God. And this is what I call in your book, books verbose praying. The rabbis even taught that the longer a prayer was, then the greater chance there was of God answering it, and you know, that it would gain God's favor the longer it was, the more God had a chance of, of hearing it, maybe, or, or answering it, which is foolish to think about. And this led to a contest of, of who could pray the longest prayers in public places. For the sake of appearing very spiritual before others, a scribe or a, or a Pharisee would, for example, pray long, long prayers when he was standing there on the street corner or in the synagogue. And and Jesus warned about this. This is what he's warning about in Matthew 6, verse 7, when he says, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Some Some of the time when they wanted to speak a long prayer, they would just keep going. But other times they would repeat the same thing over and over again to make that prayer longer. You know, if they run out of things to think about to pray for, they just would repeat the same thing. And this warning was also given by the Lord in Mark twelve forty. Over in Mark twelve forty, he said to beware of scribes who, quote, for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. End of quote. Now, does this mean does this mean that long prayers are wrong? No. Of course that isn't what it means. It doesn't mean that long prayers are wrong. They are only wrong. If the motive for them is wrong, which would be for man's acclaim, you know, for man to say, oh, look how long that prayer was. Isn't he spiritual or isn't she spiritual? Because she could just go on and on and on. If the motive is for vainglory, then long prayers are wrong. They are also wrong if a person thinks that his or her prayers gain God's favor only because they are long. The length of a prayer has absolutely nothing to do with its spirituality. But you are all so smart. You knew that, didn't you? Obviously. But they didn't, and a lot of people still don't. As stated, the disciples' prayer is only how many words long? 66. It doesn't take very long to say 66 words, especially if you're a woman, you know. (laughs) It's only 66 words long in the English, and yet it contains every single principle of prayer needed for effective prayer. The danger of long public prayers is that the one praying is more tempted to slip into pretense and into this repetition and meaningless verbosity just to keep talking. Uh, I want to read a quote to you from a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount by R. Kent Hughes at this point. he, He wrote this. He said, quote, Our Lord was not and is not impressed with a lot of words. He is impressed with what the heart is saying. This comes right down to where we live. Our Lord shows us here just how terrible and entrenched our sin is. We tend to regard sin as something that affects us when we are far away from God like the prodigal son. But sin is far more subtle and ingrained than that. It intrudes into the very highest and holiest of acts, which is what? Prayer. He says, It is understood by all that when believers are engaged in prayer, that is the ultimate activity in which their souls can be engaged. He says, A telling photograph of sin is that of someone on his knees in prayer pouring out his soul to God in worship only to have the prayer dissolve into preoccupation with self so that he is really worshiping himself. Sadly, innumerable prayers, public and private, never rise beyond self. End of quote. And I thought, well, that gets really close to home. You know, even when we're praying, which is the greatest activity of the human soul, our prayers can so quickly turn inward and we just focus on self instead of focusing on God. And that's a danger we all have to be aware of and alert to. Now, another form of verbose prayer, which we've mentioned, <clears throat> was that of vain repetition. The Lord said not to pray as the heathen do, which was by use of vain repetition. The pagans used, and they still use, a lot of repetition in their prayers. We mentioned last week the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 who called out, O Baal, answer us from morning until sunset, and then raved on further after the time of the offering of the evening uh, sacrifice. They were trying to get their God's attention. Wouldn't you hate a God like that, that you just had to call and cut yourself and do all kinds of weird things in order to try to, to wake him up? Or maybe he's gone out on a vacation. Aren't you glad that our, our God never slumbers or sleeps? And that he's there 24-7. You also might remember how the great crowd in Ephesus who worshipped the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana how they cried out over and over again for two hours straight, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can look at that in Acts 19, 34. All that this kind of vain repetition does is demonstrate a very, very weak God. God with a small g, or goddess with a small g, because there really are no other gods except God. Uh, because it's a God who has to be aroused or cajoled or badgered and, uh, to listen and to respond. Now, it's certainly, if used in speaking to the true God, this kind of repetition certainly does not demonstrate an understanding of his omniscience. It is just a great deal of nonsense if you think about it, because it doesn't impress God in the least to just keep saying the same thing over and over again. In fact, God actually condemns it. We don't talk to one another that way, do we? Do I, if I'm going to talk to Terry, do I say that, well, she probably has to do it with me, but I don't have to do it with her because she, she hears me and responds on the first time I say it. But if I was to talk to her, I wouldn't say over and over and over and over again the same thing. So why would we talk to God who is so much higher and so much greater and so much wiser and so much more omniscient than us, why would we talk to him in such a way? Like they did. Oh, Baal, hear us and answer us. Would we say, oh, God, hear us and answer us. Oh, God, hear us and answer us. Oh, God, from morning to sunset? What is that showing? What is that demonstrating about our intelligence (laughs) and what we think of his intelligence There's no intelligence at all in such prayers that are simply rote repetition, a repeating of the same kind of chant or the same kind of mantra over and over again. Those priests and those ecclesiastical mucky mucks who tell people to do this are insulting man's intelligence. And those who tell people to do this to God, are insulting God's intelligence and God's omniscience. Do you know why so many religions do this, however? It's because it takes so little or no concentration to do this, and yet it makes a person feel like they have performed their religious duty when they finish. The Buddhists have their great big spinning wheels which contain the prayers of the people, you go to the Buddhist temple, and, and you have a little prayer written out, piece of paper, and you stick it in this great big, huge, kind of like a roulette wheel. You put it in this spinning wheel, and they are told that with each spin of the wheel, their prayers are, are sent to their God, their false God. So, so you know what they do? They, they keep this, the wheel spinning all the time. Same with churches that tell their people to light candles, and are taught to believe that as long as the candle burns, their prayers will continue to ascend repeatedly to God. That's an easy way to pray, isn't it? Just got to light the candle, say my little prayer, and then all day long as while that candle is burning, my prayers are ascending to God. And that will make me feel good. I've, I, well, I've, I've performed my religious duty. Um, is this true? The spinning wheel thing and the, and the lit candles, is this true? No, it's absolutely fra- false, absolutely false. You won't find anything like this in the Bible. There is the prayer of the rosary, and I'm sorry if I step on feet with this, but the rosary is where you are told to repeat over and over again these words. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Amen. Now, a a complete rosary consists of saying what I just said to you a total of 53 times and then praying the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer a total of six times. So if you say the Hail Mary 53 and then the Lord's Prayer six times, you have performed the complete rosary. Now, do you know where the idea and when you do that with each count, you you um, hold the little bead so you know you know that you've finished when you've finished. You count the little beads. Um, Do you know where the idea of the rosary came from? It is not in the Bible. You can search from cover to cover; it is not in the Bible anywhere. It came from pagan religions. Absolutely, came from pagan religions. What about saying something over and over again until you begin to speak in some mystical type of language thought to be a higher level of spirituality? What does the Bible say about all this? That's what I care about. I don't care what people tell me. I don't care what people in ecclesiastical clothing tell me. I care about what this book tells me. This is our final authority, the Bible, not church doctrine the Bible. What does the Bible say about all this? Yeah, just, all right, can you see me afterwards? Write it down, because I'll answer you afterward. What does the Bible say about all this? It says, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Prayer which is thoughtless and prayer which is repetitious and prayer which is not from the heart and which is indifferent. Prayer like that offends a sovereign, omniscient God, and therefore it is wrong. Even repeating the same little prayer at mealtimes almost without thinking is wrong, and we should stop and speak our prayers from our heart. Now, this is something that you mothers and grandmothers should teach your children I know it's a temptation to sit down with a little one, say the same, have them, it's so cute, have them say the same little prayer every time at mealtime. Don't do that because you're teaching them this that we're talking against. Have them speak it from the heart, even if they just say, thank you, Jesus, for this food. As long as it's coming from their heart, that's so much more important than a repetitious prayer. I grew up having repetitious prayer. Every meal we said exactly the same words. And at night I said, my par- parents didn't tell me to do this, but I learned this little prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray, and I said that every night. It was repetition. Now sometimes maybe it would come from the heart, but the, t- the temptation is most of the time it doesn't. You just feel like you've done your religious obligation, and let's go on. Let's dig into the food. Now in verse 8, Jesus says, For your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. That statement reaffirms both the fatherhood aspect of God toward his children as well as his omniscience, which, you see, the reason he said that is because he's saying God knows even before you ask him what you need, so why do you think you have to say it over and over and over and over again like the heathen do? He's omniscient. That's what he's stressing there. makes vain repetition an insult to him. Now, just because God is ever aware of our needs, another danger, which some people have been led to think, is um, that since God knows what we have need of before we even ask him, then why do we need to even pray at all? God knows, so why ask? And there are people who will argue that. But you see, God's omniscience, just because he knows everything, is not an excuse for us not to pray. It is mentioned this is mentioned on the heels of the uh, of the Lord's words about vain repetition. That's what he's going for, not the fact that we don't need to pray. In other words, we don't have to repeat something over and over again so that God will get well acquainted with what our needs are, are because he already knows them. Now there's a whole other side of of being persistent in prayers, and you know the difference, I hope. Repetition is saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. Persistence is Praying for somebody to be saved, for example, on a daily basis or a weekly basis or you know, just persisting in your prayers until that per- you see a response, either a yes or no, whatever. Okay, but there's, there's a distinct difference. He's not talking about persistence here. So why do we pray? Well, we pray in order to show our dependence upon God, to show our devotion to God, and to show our desire for him. When you, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them, right? We pray, too, because we are commanded to pray. Notice his words, the Lord's words in verse 9. He says, pray ye. And, of course, we are told in other many other passages in the Scripture to pray. We are commanded to pray. A prayer is not an option. It is commanded. Now, as we look at the next verses, we find that the Lord contrasts the hypocritical heathenish type of praying with his example that he gives to us of effective, righteous prayer. And the prayer he gave has certain essential principles that he wants us to accept and then to apply to our own prayer lives. The words that we each will use as we pray to God will be different from these that he gives to us, but the principles should be the same. And the essentials are to be the same. So in this perfect prayer pr- pattern, we find three essentials for effective prayer. And they are that we have a right relationship. Right relationships, I should say. There's two of them. We have to have a right relationship with God, and we have to have a right relationship with our, the family of God. So we'll look at the essential of right relationships, and we'll look at the essential of right responsibilities which are to exalt God's name, to expedite God's kingdom, and to execute his will. And then we will look next week at right requests. All right, so let's look at, first of all, right relationships. Being rightly related to God is indicated to us by the fact that Jesus told us to pray to our who? Our Father, which art in heaven. And to be able to call him Father... We must be spiritually related to him through our faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So to have a good and effective prayer life, it is first and foremost critical, vital, absolutely necessary that one begin with salvation. That one accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and understands that he gave his life to cover your sins pay the penalty of death in your place when you accept christ then we are god's children by faith in his son we inherit sonship with his son jesus christ and then we can rightly call him abba father abba is the aramaic word for father and it's actually uh the term which most closely could be translated as daddy the most intimate word a child has for his father daddy dearest or father dearest or daddy it's the aramaic word the greek word for father is pater and that's how the lord's prayer begins pater imon at the anyway go on, on. I told you i knew it in greek i can't believe i can still remember it so we isn't that a wonderful privilege to be able to call god our our daddy it's absolutely fantastic. It's just, it just boggles the mind when you really think about it, that Jehovah God, I am that I am, the creator, the sovereign God of the universe, the king of the universe, can be personally addressed as father. Now, that might not really strike us as so strange. Nobody in here is jumping up and down about that because we've almost become immune to it. We, we've, we've known it for so long that we forget sometimes how fantastic it really is. To those of the Lord's day, when Christ was walking this earth, it was absolutely revolutionary. Even though the Old Testament writers referred to the fatherhood of God, it was in terms of him as being the creator of all mankind. And it was in terms of him being the father of their nation, the father of Israel, when they referred to God. They would speak of heaven, or they would speak of the most high, or they would talk about him as Lord, but they never nobody you can search the entire Old Testament and not even Abraham will you find ever referring to God on the intimate term as Father. In fact, in the whole Old Testament, God is only referred to as Father a total of fourteen times. And every single one of those times, it is in reference to the nation of Israel. It's not to individuals. It's not personal as to the fact that he is the father of Israel. However, when Jesus came on the scene, he only addressed God as father. And he never used anything else. In just the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that Jesus used the word Father more than 60 times. And this is so shocking and so striking a thing that some scholars actually tell us that the dramatic difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the use of this word Father. So to the Jewish mind, Jesus' prayer was absolutely revolutionary and of course even blasphemous because they didn't believe the Jews the, the relig- religious leaders did not believe that he was who he claimed to be so they accused him of blasphemy because in saying that God was his father he was saying he had the same nature as God and that he was his son so they said it was absolutely blasphemous and it had been one thing for he himself to have called God his Father, which had already, in our Life of Christ study, had already occurred on more than one occasion and got the religious rulers all bent out of shape. But imagine this. Now he is telling his followers to begin their own prayers by calling God what? Our Father. They said, teach us to pray. And the first thing he says is, pray after this manner, our Father. I mean, they must have been shocked. You want us to call God? They would. They had such a reverence for God's name that they wouldn't even speak the name Jehovah, which is Yahweh. They wouldn't even speak it. They still won't even write it. They just put the first and last letter down. But He was giving them a share in His sonship and empowering them as His followers to speak to their heavenly Father in a, as familiar and as trusting a way as a child would speak to a loving earthly father. He was transferring the fatherhood of God from a theological doctrine to an intense, practical, intimate experience. With our salvation and with our receiving the spirit of sonship, God becomes warm and personal. It's fantastic to think about. Father is the most intimate name that that the Christian has for God. Abba, Father, Daddy. Knowing God as our Father drives home the reality of our forgiveness. When you think that he is, you know, even an earthly daddy will forgive a child. I'm talking about a kind, hearted earthly father. We know there's exceptions. but, But we're speaking of our Heavenly Father. Notice Jesus went on to say, Our Father, which art in heaven of course he is going to forgive his children well all we have to do is say i'm sorry daddy forgive me and of course he's going to forgive so it drives home our forgiveness it brings greater confidence to us it brings greater security to us and it just brings a greater wholeness into our lives when we can get a a hold on this fact that he is our our heavenly father it's hard for me to grasp that because i don't have a good father image and it's taken me many years to, to understand this. I see it exemplified more in my husband and his fatherhood with our children than I saw it growing up. But it is, it's, an, it's a fantastic, when you finally get a hold on it, it is a fantastic concept. Now, having said all that, we need to remember that although God is our Father and he is involved in our lives and he is to be intimately approached as Abba, Daddy. Daddy dearest, for those who belong to him who are his spiritual children. Yet we must not forget that he is not a benign teddy bear. The problem with many Christians is that they have so sentimentalized God's fatherhood that they do not have a proper reverence for his holiness. The delicate balance of truth in the Christian life, the more you... a christian the longer you are christian the more you'll see so much of it is a balance and so many people go overboard on one side or the other with issues the lord wants us to remember that our father is in heaven which stresses his transcendence he is sovereign king of the entire universe he surpasses everything that is human he is not only our father he is our king We have the awesome privilege, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the awesome privilege of calling him Father, but we should always do so with the deepest sense of reverence and humility and wonder. He exceeds even the most wonderful human Father in every single conceivable way. He is our Father in heaven. He knows everything about us. And even our own fathers didn't know that. He always cares. He loves us unconditionally. He always understands. He always chastens us justly. Never punishes us overboard or not enough. He never forsakes us. He never forgets us. He never leaves us. He's always dependable. He's always available. He always keeps. His promises. Amen? The fatherhood of God enriches our lives, not only vertically with him, but then also, talking about the second relationship we have to have for proper, effective, fervent prayer, the fatherhood of God enriches our lives horizontally with our fellow man, and this is what the use of the pronoun our reminds us of when jesus said our father all believers are part of the family of god if we love god our father then we are then we are to um, love and pray for one another in the family of god there's no place in god's family for selfishness and again i think of that pharisee in the temple when everything was i i i if you go and read his prayer He said, you know, I tithe, I give all, I'm so wonderful, I'm so glad I'm not like that publican. The whole thing was I, I, I. If you look through this perfect prayer pattern, you don't see the word my or me ever used once. Jesus instead is telling us we should think in terms of our and us. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 11, look at verse 12, look at verse 13. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. So when we go to God in prayer, we are to remember the household of faith so that our prayers are not selfish, so that we don't get all me-oriented. So let's remember that. Our, our, us, we this reminds us not to pray for things that might help us individually, but would hurt or hinder others in God's family. I might pray for something that would help me a lot, but it might, not, it might hurt somebody else. It also reminds us that we, if we are not in a right relationship with a fellow Christian, then our prayers will be hindered. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this prayer is divided into how many petitions... The whole prayer is divided into six petitions. Three are for God, for God's glory, and three are for us or for our neighbor, for, for mankind. The order, as I said, is to put God first. Now, of course, there are times when there's exceptions to that. For example, when Peter was sinking in the water, <laughs> he didn't say, Oh, great art thou, God. May thy name be hallowed. May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done. He just said, What? Lord, save me! <laughs> There are times, this is a prayer pattern, okay? It's not a prayer mandate that every prayer we pray, we have to start out by exalting God, putting God first. There are times when we shoot up an arrow prayer, example, maybe you're driving along on the street and a a truck starts coming at you. You're not gonna go through that perfect prayer pattern, are you? You're gonna shoot up what we call an arrow prayer straight to God and say, God save me, (laughs) help me, help. So there's always exceptions here. so he's giving us a prayer pattern. Normally, our prayers should begin with a loving and worshiping heart toward God. Model for effective prayer, Christ shared three petitions which will help us in our prayer closets to remember to, first of all, exalt and glorify God's name. That's when he said, hallowed be thy name. And then to expedite his kingdom. We're always to be praying that his kingdom will come, that it will hasten and then we are to execute his to, to remind ourselves to execute his will thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so let's look first of all at exalting god's name the very first petition of the the lord's model prayer is for us to honor the name of god to exalt god's name which is to honor it hallowed be thy name hallowed means what holy It means uh, reverence, set apart, sanctified. So it means to honor and to glorify God. God's name speaks of all that he is, his person. It represents all that he is. God is very vigilant about his name, isn't he? When you go through the scripture, you see how important his name is to him. We are not to take God's name in vain and of course most of you don't do that but it can be used flippantly and we have to be aware of that and alert to that because it's so easy for us to to I hate to even say this but I'm only doing this as an example to say oh god but that's taking God's name in vain or to say oh lordy lordy you know and you hear it's it's you hear this a lot it slips out just all too quickly i remember even our pastor over at grace chapel years ago saying When somebody sneezes, don't just say it flippantly, God bless you, without thinking about it, because that's using his name flippantly, that's taking his name in vain. Um, Or, oh my God, you know, all kinds of little things we can do to take his name in vain. Make sure your children are aware of this. Catch them every time they do it, because if they're in a public school or out in the world, even television, you hear it all the time. Stop them and say, no, that is taking God's name in vain. We do not do that. And don't you do it yourself. God commands that his name be exalted, that his name be lifted up, that his name be glorified, which is precisely what Christ did. Again, our example, when he was on earth. And that's why he was able to perfectly say to his heavenly father in John 17, which is the Lord's prayer, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that at the end of your life? Whew. I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Oh, that's part of, put that in your prayers. Wow, I'd love to be able to say that. The most impo- important objective of our entire lives should be to what? To glorify God. That's what it's all about. Our lives are not to glorify ourselves and to be happy, and to find contentment, and to enjoy creature comforts, and da da, da 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 Even raising our children, being a helpmate to our husbands, is all about glorifying God. That is the final objective of our lives. Therefore, our prayers should be primarily for the glory of God. And when you put all your prayer requests in a line with that, you're going to weed out some of those prayer requests. So this request for God's name to be Hollywood should not only preface our prayers but should actually be what um, prompts us to pray in the first place should be to glorify god prayer is not to be reduced to some kind of a give me list but it should begin and be motivated by the desire to have god glorified the responsibility in our prayer lives and in our daily walk with the lord our walk with christ is to glorify god's name it's not to glorify god our own names, His name, God's name, as I said, speaks of His person, His character. God has many names throughout the Scripture, um, many many names, wonderful, which tell us about all the different aspects of His character, His being. Uh, for example, uh, Jehovah speaks of His personal—that's His personal name. Um, that's why the Jews won't even speak that name, Yahweh. I am that I am. Jehovah Shalom means that the Lord is our peace. Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide, or the Lord provides. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. Um, There's the name Elohim, which speaks of he as the creator God. Adonai, Lord, Um, and on and on and on. What is the greatest name, however, of God? The name that is above every other name. The greatest name for God is Jesus, Jesus Christ. Peter wrote, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And that word sanctify comes from, is the same word as hollow, hollowed. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. We hollow God's name when we hollow his son. Did you know that? If you want to hollow and exalt God's name, you hollow or sanctify, glorify his son. We also hollow God's name when we practice sound doctrine and have true knowledge of God's person, which we acquire how as we study his word. A willful and uh, a willfully ignorant and indifferent attitude toward the Word of God does not evidence a proper reverence toward God. We have to we have to have a reverence for his word because it says, he says that he even exalts his word seven times above his name. And you know what he thinks of his name. So what does that say? He says of, thinks of his word. So if we're going to exalt God and hallow his name, we definitely need to reverence and exalt and, and study and know his word. When we do all to the glory of God, we are exalting his name. In other words, then also everything we do in our lives, whether you're sweeping the kitchen floor or cooking dinner, whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. Furthermore, we hallow his name when we witness of him to others and do all that we can to bring others into his kingdom by our testimony and our commitment to follow and obey him. You know, maybe some of your prayers or my prayers are not being answered because we are really not hallowing his name. Maybe some of our prayer requests, if answered in the way we expect God to answer them or want them to be answered, would not really bring honor and glory to his name. All right, also we are to expedite God's kingdom. Now, let me just very briefly do this. If you have to go, you can go, but I want to finish so everything is on the cassette tape. According to the continuing prayer of Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus said we are also to petition God regarding the hastening of the coming of his kingdom. He said, thy kingdom come. Now, some have argued that this is a petition for the second coming of Christ and this establishment of his literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth and that it has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with our present lives. So they say it's just all yet future. Thy kingdom come is just a prayer for the second coming of Christ and the messianic kingdom. Now others have argued that it has nothing at all to do with the second coming of Christ, his future coming, but it just has to do with a call to social action and good works here and now in this life. And yet others see the petition as having to do spiritually with the furtherance of the kingdom of God in the hearts of true believers. Remember, we've already learned that his kingdom has come in the hearts of true believers. He said the kingdom is where? Within you. So they say it has to do uh, with the furtherance of God's kingdom in the hearts of true believers. And therefore, it is a prayer just for us Christians and also that we share the gospel with others so that others have the kingdom of God within them. Well, my conclusion is that it's really a prayer for all three of those things. Prayer for the kingdom of God to come is prayer for God's overall kingdom program to be fulfilled, which includes past, present, future. His kingdom exists now spiritually in the hearts of true believers, and therefore, yes, we are to pray for his kingdom to come. Um, in the sense that we are to pray for more souls to be brought into his kingdom. By the way, when he says that we are to pray your kingdom come, does that mean that there is right now another kingdom? There is another kingdom. There's a the kingdom of darkness, which is headed up by Satan. The kingdom of darkness. One day the kingdom of light and Jesus Christ will come. His kingdom um, will also one day exist literally in the future when Christ does reign on earth for a thousand years so when we pray thy kingdom come we are also praying for this future aspect of god's kingdom is christ coming again yes he is and if you want to pray properly effectively and fervently you're going to pray for his kingdom to come that's how the bible ends even so come quickly lord jesus and the more i see of this world the more i say that come quickly lord jesus may you finally get the glory you deserve men are just abusing you and profaning you in such an awful way and ignoring you and indifferent to you and turning to false religions and all kinds of junk that I, I just want so badly the day when he sits on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords and everybody finally acknowledges who he is and how wonderful he is. So we should always include that in our prayer. May your kingdom come not only here and now, as more souls are brought into your kingdom, and may it come in my heart even greater, but may it soon come here to earth. And then lastly, we are to always, of course, pray that his will would be done. The believer's third God-directed prayer responsibility is to execute and accomplish God's will on earth. Prayer is not to be us telling God what to do. Rather, it is for us to find out what God wants us to. To do and then asking to be used by him as he gets it done. Find out where God is working and join him. Find out what his will is. And there's so many people I hear this people who pray who don't know God's overall redemptive program and they're praying for things that are in contradiction to his program, his the future. That's why it's so important to know the book of Revelation so your prayers are properly aligned with his program and his will. You know, he's not finished with Israel yet. He's going to do great work with Israel. So if you're praying, Lord, let the Israelites keep giving more and more land to the Palestinians so there will finally be peace, you know what? You're praying against the will of God. We have to know God's program to understand how to pray properly and effectively. That's why Daniel's prayer was answered so quickly and properly. He understood God's program, that we're only going to be here as captives in Babylon for 70 years, Lord, 70 years are up. It's time for you to send us back. See, he knew God's program. He knew God's word, so he could align his prayers with God's word. That's why it's so important to study his word, so we can align our prayers with his will. All right. pray. Father God, may you rule increasingly in the in the lives of your people and use us, Lord, to ever grow the population of your kingdom. And also, Father... May your final messianic kingdom be established soon here on earth. May the day come soon when sin is judged and the universe will be willingly subject to your will. And, Father, might we live in, con- in continuously growing obedience to your declared will as it is revealed to us in your word. Father, thank you so much for the hunger and the thirst of these women, and may they truly be satisfied. We love you, God, and we do want to exalt your name and help us from now on to to think with our hearts about what we lift up in prayer to you. You are so worthy of exaltation, and we love you, and we pray in our precious Lord and Savior's name, Jesus, the name above all names, amen.